The day of March 11, 2011 began like any other for the residents of the Tohoku region of northeastern Japan. What had begun as an overcast morning was, by noon, mostly sunny. Everything was business as usual. Trains ran on schedule, schools were in session, and the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in the town of Okuma was up and running as it always was. But little did anyone suspect the impending doom that was looming on the horizon, or rather, beneath their feet. About 45 miles, 72 kilometers off the coast of this industrial region, a massive earthquake struck at 2.46pm local time. By the time it and the ensuing aftermath were through, nearly 16,000 people had lost their lives. What's the science behind the Tohoku earthquake? What made it so devastating? And how did the Japanese government and people cope with its devastation? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome back to the History Loves Company podcast because history is shaped by all of us. Having been born and raised in Los Angeles, I'm no stranger to earthquakes. The first one I remember also happens to be the largest I've yet experienced. In the early morning hours of January 17, 1994, I was awoken by violent shaking. Screaming for my parents, they rushed into my room and carried me to safety onto our front lawn, during which time the tremor subsided. We would learn later that the magnitude had registered a 6.7 on the Richter scale. Though it had only lasted roughly 15 seconds, the damage was severe, and being only 2 miles 3.2 kilometers from the epicenter was quite extensive. For eight days, our neighborhood as well as surrounding areas were without electricity and water, and several fires had broken out as a result of several ruptured gas mains. Those who live locally and or remember that fateful morning know that I'm referring to none other than the Northridge earthquake, which, despite being one of the largest in California's, specifically Los Angeles's history, pales in comparison to others that have taken place the world over, including the one that rocked northeastern Japan on the afternoon of March 11, 2011. This being a history podcast, please allow me to get scientific for a moment. The science behind earthquakes is the science of movement along the Earth's surface. By definition, an earthquake is defined as a sudden and violent shaking of the ground, sometimes causing great destruction, as a result of movements within the Earth's crust or volcanic action, as per the Oxford English Dictionary. That's all fine and dandy, but what exactly triggers them? If you remember your middle school science classes, then you're aware that the Earth is comprised of several tectonic plates, which are essentially massive, irregularly shaped pieces of rock that make up the crust, the outermost layer of the Earth's surface, which is also known as the lithosphere. Floating along the mantle, the molten layer beneath the lithosphere, there are seven major plates and several minor ones. Where two plates meet is where earthquakes take place, in an area known as the subduction zone, in which one plate is forced into the mantle beneath the other. When friction occurs between the two plates, an earthquake is triggered. Much like yours truly, Japan is no stranger to seismic activity. That's because it's one of the many countries located along the Ring of Fire, a notoriously geologically active area that encompasses virtually the entire Pacific Rim. The archipelago specifically is right on the cusp of two tectonic plates, the Eurasian and the Pacific, with the Pacific plate being forced under the Eurasian plate. So it was, at exactly 2.46pm on that fateful March day, that the Pacific plate buckled up after years of friction and pressure, triggering a massive earthquake the like of which Japan had never seen before or since. Thanks to an early warning system, the people of the Tohoku region were notified 30 seconds prior to the shaking, though it would prove little help in this instance. You'll see what I mean as we continue. When the tremor made landfall, it lasted for a record six minutes, registering a whopping 9.1 on the Richter scale, becoming not only the largest earthquake in the country's history, but also the fourth largest in the entire world. Buildings and high-rises swayed to and fro, though miraculously, they didn't fall, largely because they had either been seismically retrofitted or built to withstand massive tremors. The shaking was felt in the nation's capital, Tokyo, some 135 miles, 220 kilometers away, and in places 
places as remote as the Kamchatka Peninsula in eastern Russia, the island nation of Taiwan, and even in Beijing, China. In Tokyo, which was essentially built on a natural harbor, groundwater began to seep up through the soil, causing streets and pavement to buckle and break. Whole parks, homes, and businesses became flooded as a result, but even they had it easy compared to other areas, namely the Tohoku region itself, which is geographically the closest place to the epicenter. In the northeastern coastal town of Okuma, for example, the aforementioned Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant's active reactors had automatically shut down their power-generating fission reactions upon detecting ground movement, as they were programmed to do in such a situation. However, problems with the electrical grid were unable to provide electricity to the reactors, causing the emergency generators, powered by diesel, to kick in instead. The generators were vital for successful operation of the facility, as they provided power to the pumps to circulate coolant through the reactor's cores, preventing a meltdown that would release harmful amounts of radiation into the atmosphere. Once the shaking stopped, it seemed as if a crisis had been diverted, and the power plant's staff took a collective sigh of relief. But, as they say, when it rains it pours, and the earthquake itself was only the tip of the proverbial iceberg. No sooner had the citizens of the Tohoku region recovered from the violent shaking were they notified of a big tsunami headed their way. The tremor had produced an upthrust of up to 20 to 26 feet, 6 to 8 meters in height, along a 110-mile, 180-kilometer stretch of seabed located about 37 miles off the coast of Tohoku. This upthrust triggered a tsunami that, by the time it made landfall at around 3.55 p.m. local time, had reached a height of up to 132 feet, 40 meters. To make matters worse, from the initial warning issued by the Japanese Meteorological Agency, residents only had about 10 to 30 minutes to evacuate to higher ground. People packed up their cars and fled for their lives, unaware of just how severe the situation would prove to become. Being a seismically active country and always on high alert, Japan had taken the necessary precautions and built seawalls and tsunami shelters far inland in preparation for such a catastrophic event as this. But this was no ordinary catastrophe. The region's coastal towns, most notably Sendai, were virtually swept away by the Great Wave, which had formed a kind of black tide as it swallowed up cars, houses, and people in its deadly wake. Seawalls and high-elevation shelters proved fruitless against the onslaught, which reached up to six miles, 9.7 kilometers inland, destroying everything in its path before carrying it back out to open sea. Meanwhile, in Okuma, the staff at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant were in a frenzy as they tried to obtain a handle on the dire situation there. As to be expected, the tsunami had reached them as well, and the rushing waters had destroyed their diesel backup generators, creating what scientists and experts around the world dubbed the worst nuclear accident since Chernobyl. With no coolant circulating through the reactor's cores, radiation began leaking into the air and surrounding environment in copious amounts. In the years following the tragedy, the Japanese government tried to keep a handle on the situation with cleanup efforts, though it did little to release its findings to the public. Ten years on, the areas surrounding the power plant have been deemed safe once again, but the hollowed-out facility still stands, a harrowing reminder of the terror of that day, as well as the dangers of nuclear energy. Experts don't know how long it will take to clean the site itself, or what will become of the facility once it's raised. Though the size and scale of the Tohoku earthquake made it one of the largest to date, it was its aftermath that cemented its reputation as one of the deadliest natural disasters, not just in recent, but in all of history. When the tsunami's waters had finally receded, it had claimed the lives of some 15,899 souls, of whom most still remain unaccounted. Many more were made homeless as a result of the wave. 
the earthquake itself was so great that it caused portions of northeastern Japan to shift by as much as 7 feet 10 inches, 2.4 meters closer to North America. 250 miles, 400 kilometers of coastline dropped vertically by 2 feet, 0.6 meters, which is what caused the lethal tsunami to travel as fast and as far inland as it did. Nearly a month later, on April 6th, the Japanese Coast Guard reported that the seabed near the epicenter had shifted a whopping 79 feet, 24 meters, and had been raised 9.8 feet, 3 meters above the ocean floor. But the earthquake's effects were felt across the Pacific as well. The states of Hawaii, Oregon, and California all reported sizable waves off their respective coasts in the hours following the tremor, which toppled dock boats and smashed docks themselves into pieces. In South America, Chile was on high alert with tsunami warnings extended to all of its coastal areas. But it was what arrived months later that truly brought the weight of the disaster into perspective for those outside of Japan. In April 2012, the first debris flows from the earthquake made landfall in such far-flung places as Alaska, British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, and California. Bits of houses, smashed boats, soccer balls, and even a motorcycle were all reported having washed up along the beaches. The people who found them said that they would never forget them, and rightfully so. The sheer amount of human loss and devastation of the Tohoku earthquake can scarcely be comprehended, but perhaps these disparate articles, reduced to flotsam on distant shores, can offer a harrowing glimpse into the unspeakable horror and tragedy of that day. That's all for this episode. Thanks for taking the time out to listen. I apologize for being absent last week, but I was working on a side project which I'm proud to say has been completed. If you'd like to check that out as well, please visit blog.readsy.com slash creative-writing-prompts and search When the Flood Comes. It's a short story with a powerful message, and I do so hope that you enjoy it. If you'd like to support me and my work on this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there, you'll be directed to three monthly payment plans which fit any budget. Any and all support is greatly appreciated. And be sure to tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast. Because history is shaped by all of us. Available wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next week. Thank you.